Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Table Church. It's, it's a privilege to have you here today. And as Megan said, if you're new, welcome. I hope you feel right at home. Uh, be sure to stop by the Welcome Center after church and say hello, and we've got a gift for you there. Um, but I also want to add my, my voice to what Megan mentioned about volunteering. Um, we could use some more volunteers on some of, our, some of our teams, particularly hospitality team or kids team, nursery. Uh, so if, you're, if you've been coming to Table Church for a while, if you call this your home, but you haven't plugged in yet, I just want to encourage you to consider, consider jumping into a service team and just being a blessing to, to not only those of us in the room, but those of us who have not come yet. All right. Uh, we're going to be looking at John chapter 1 today. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open John chapter 1. We'll look at verses 43 to 50. John 1, verses 43 to 50. You can pull out a Bible. If you don't have one, you can raise your hand and somebody will bring you one. Uh, and if you don't want to do that, you can pull out your phone. If you just don't want to do any of those things, you just look at the screen. It'll be above me in the screen. But there's something, there's something meaningful about seeing it in the text of your own Bible. And you never know when the Lord's going to prompt you to underline something or, or make a note in the margins to remind you next time about something you learned here today. Here's what we read. It says, The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Now, verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Over the past few weeks, I've been walking through our discipleship pathway with my friend Rick. Some of you know Rick. Rick has been a part of Table Church since actually the very beginning. And so we've been walking through our discipleship pathway workbook, and we're in the chapter on prayer. And the question that we were discussing was this. It said, how might our lives change if we really had a prayer life where we talked with God regularly? How would it change your life if, if, you're, if you really had a prayer life where you talked with God regularly? Now, Rick had a great answer. I would call it a, a theologically accurate answer, all right? It was something about how, well, you know, God could bring his kingdom to earth through me more. And that's true. But as he told me his answer, I wondered, I did get Rick's permission to share the story today, by the way. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Uh, I, I, I asked him, I wondered if there was something more personal for Rick in this. And I said, you know, Rick, what if, what if having a walking, talking relationship with God could make you less anxious? And to my surprise, Rick almost started to cry. You see, for Rick, anxiety is a constant companion. But that moment, something seemed to click. You see, prayer, all this prayer stuff suddenly actually meant something for Rick. It meant that God's presence might actually alleviate some anxiety. And it suddenly, suddenly made the good news into actually potentially good news for Rick. 
Now, I've shared before that our faith needs to make the jump from our head to our heart. That jump or that leap is what this series is about. What we want to say is this. Genuine faith always comes after an encounter with God. And so we're kicking off a new series today where that word encounter is going to be very important. The name of the series is Encounters with Jesus, and we're looking at stories of people in the Bible who have encounters with Jesus. Right? Jesus comes into their life in some way, and, and it always changes their lives. And, and they always learn something. There's usually some, some sort of a miracle that happens, but honestly, it's not really the miracles that are the most important thing that I want to focus on. What's most important is that when, when somebody encounters Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus always makes it personal for them. He helps make that leap from head to heart for them. See, it's when Jesus becomes real for them that their lives change. And so this series is about us having our own personal encounter with Jesus, where suddenly it's no longer, oh, yeah, you know, the theologically correct answer. It's like, oh, wait a second. God might actually have something specifically for me, something that might not even be that meaningful to others, but he has it for me. Today we meet a skeptic named Nathaniel. Nathaniel's skeptical about Jesus. In fact, he's a lot like many people today. He's got doubts about what people are saying about Jesus. And not only doubts, he's rather dismissive when he first hears about him. Philip comes to him. He says, Nathaniel, you know, we found the Messiah, the one the prophets spoke of. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel, whom I imagine is sitting in the grass with his nose in a book, doesn't even look up. Just Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Apparently, Nathaniel has opinions about Nazareth, and they aren't good. And we're not really sure exactly why he, he has these thoughts about Nazareth. I mean, maybe there's like some, you know, competition between regions in ancient Galilee or something. Or, or maybe, probably what's most likely is it was just considered kind of a backwater place. And so it'd be like, I come to y'all and I say, guys, I just met this incredible guy. He's from Nebraska. <laughs> You'd be like, that's not really helping the resume much. I mean, <laughs> what's the point of adding that? That's kind of what's probably going on here. So Nathaniel is skeptical. He, he makes assumptions about Jesus without ever actually having met him. Lots of people do this. Lots of people are skeptical. They have assumptions about Jesus based on some sort of prior knowledge. Maybe they grew up in church. Maybe they, you know, got through confirmation when they were young. Maybe they know some Christians who are weird. Maybe they see Christians on Twitter. You know, they have all these things and they import all of that into who Jesus must be. And so they're, they're dismissive of him. But listen, if somehow, if somehow you're listening to this sermon today and you, you consider yourself a skeptic when it comes to Jesus... I have something I'd like to share with you. And the first is this. I think you have a little bit of a problem. And here's what I would say the problem is. Is that there's a good chance that those who dismiss Jesus have other assumptions about the world that are actually given to them by Jesus. I think a lot of people who dismiss Jesus actually have beliefs about the world that are, in fact, given to them by Jesus. Let me tell you what I mean here. Here's an example. Universal human dignity. Universal human dignity. Today, you and I, most of us here, probably, I'm, I'm guessing, believe that all people have an inherent value, have an inherent worth, 
simply because they're humans. Right? Guess what? It didn't used to be that way. Nobody used to think like that. Nobody used to think that all people have equal value. Right? Maybe the king has some dignity. The king has some sort of value or worth bestowed on him by the gods. And there's all sorts of propaganda to help people buy into this idea. Maybe the elite class has value and worth and inherent dignity, but not the poor, not the slaves. That's how people thought. Today, we think differently. If you go out on the street in Des Moines and you say, hey, are all people, do all people have dignity? Do all people have inherent value and worth? I'm guessing most people are going to say absolutely. In fact, most people are going are to passionately defend that. So what happened? What got us from where nobody thought this to now everybody thinks this? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Jesus happened. Christians started doing crazy things like, like calling slaves their brother. And, and they taught that whatever they did for the least among them, it was like they were doing for their Lord Jesus himself. And most significantly, they had the image of a crucified God at the center of their theology. This is, it's, it, you can't explain it in strong enough terms. This is revolutionary. There's a historian named Tom Holland, and he has a whole book about this. And by the way, there's lots of historians now who are kind of coming around this idea that our, our moral framework, at least here in the West, is largely an inheritance of the gospel. And he says this, humanism, well, humanism, what's that? It's like the belief where humans take priority, usually over and above any sort of supernatural or, uh, belief or deity. It says human, humanism derives ultimately from claims made in the Bible, that humans are made in God's image, that his son died equally for everyone, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. He's quoting Galatians right there. This idea that humans have this inviolable, this inherent worth or dignity didn't just, it, it, we didn't just come to that out of nowhere. We inherited that belief and now we all believe it. So the skeptic who wants to dismiss Jesus today has something important to reckon with, I think. And it's this, if you dismiss Jesus, you are also dismissing the foundation of much of what you believe, at least when it comes to ethics. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, okay, therefore, Jesus is the Son of God, right? That's not the case. But my hope by bringing it up is that it's at least enough for you to say, maybe I should pay attention to this guy. Maybe I should pause for a second, and before I dismiss him, recognize that actually I, I stand upon the shoulders of the Christian revolution when it comes to my, my ethical reasoning. Maybe I should attend to what he has to say for a moment. Because as we're about to see, Jesus has a way of turning our assumptions upside down. Verse 46, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus is probably doing kind of some wordplay here. Um, I mean, first of all, you know, Nathanael clearly states his mind, right? He just said, can anything good come from Nazareth? He's not, a, not afraid to, sh to say what's on his mind. No deceit, right? But also Israelite, well, Israel is the name given to Jacob in the Old Testament. Jacob's na name means deceiver. And so here Jesus is saying, oh, but here's one that's not a deceiver, you know? How do you know me? Nathanael asked. 
Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So Jesus utters a couple of words and Nathanael makes a pretty quick switch, doesn't he? He goes from dismissing Jesus to confessing him as the son of God. What happened? What causes such a fast conversion here? Honestly, we're not entirely sure. I mean, we... We can read it and more or less kind of get the gist of probably what happened. You know, clearly Jesus says something about, well, I saw you under the fig tree. That's all it takes. And Nathaniel's a believer. But here's the thing. We don't really know what's so important about that fig tree. I mean, presumably Jesus is showing some sort of kind of supernatural, I don't know, psychic ability or something. We're, I think we're supposed to assume that Jesus wasn't there when he was under the fig tree, but somehow Jesus knows that he was under the fig tree. Nathaniel pieces that together and, and, and becomes a believer. Um, but it's hard to tell for sure. Tim Keller has a, a chapter in a book. The book is actually called Encounters with Jesus. And uh, he, he just kind of points out, you know, maybe there's something signi more significant here. What is, it, what is it that Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree that would have caused this flip that Jesus supposedly saw? We're not really sure, but that's the point. It doesn't make a ton of sense to us, but apparently it made a lot of sense to Nathaniel. Nathaniel just had an encounter. Imagine him trying to explain his conversion to the local skeptics club that meets at the coffee shop. You got guys, like this guy, I was under a fig tree and he said, I saw you under the fig tree and I knew God is real. You know, like they would be like, bro, not exactly compelling evidence here. See, often these things just don't translate. Often these, these encounters, when I talk about them being personal, here's what I'm talking about. It meant something to Nathaniel. His friends that were other skeptics may not have bought in ex entirely when he tries to reiterate the story to them. As we read it, we're kind of like, I mean, okay, you know, Jesus is probably one of the lesser miracles in the Gospels, honestly. Jesus even says, like, you're, you're going to see a lot more than this. Like, we're not really sure. Why sudden, like... Why the sudden change here? Well, we don't have to understand. It meant something to Nathaniel. Listen, the point is this. The cure for doubt is not evidence, but encounter. The cure for doubt in your faith, it's not evidence. We talk a lot about evidence. What you need is an encounter with God. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not against evidence. And I mean, I... I'm going to show my hand. I'm biased. I think there's a lot of evidence for God, okay? In fact, if you're a Christian today, congratulations. You're a part of maybe the greatest philosophical tradition the earth has ever seen. Like, we got all sorts of rational arguments for what we believe. Plenty of it there for anyone who wants it. I think evidence and reason can help open us up to an encounter, but it's not going to provide the encounter, Soren Kierkegaard, my boy. 
He wrote that even if we had all the objective proof we wanted, that wouldn't be enough for true faith. He's like, if, if we had 100% certainty that the Bible is true, wouldn't be enough to, it wouldn't be enough to instill faith in you, the kind of faith that, that the Bible talks about. He says that even if we had all the proof we wanted, we would only have an approximation, he calls it, of faith. We would only have an approximation of faith. Look, I've seen pictures of Mount Everest. I can Google how tall it is. I've never been on top of Mount Everest. I only have an approximation of what it is like to be on Mount Everest. How much more can, you know, is it true that facts can't get me to understanding the divine, the eternal God? True knowledge of God comes through encounter, not proof. Listen, a Christian in thought alone is not a Christian. See, the encounter is the moment that God gives you just what you need, right when you need it, and you're like, there it is. It's the moment when God is suddenly no longer an abstract idea, but a person in the room with you. It's the moment where the Holy Spirit causes a passage to leap off the page at you. And you're like, look, I can go tell people that I read this verse. It's not going to mean anything to them, but it meant something to me because that's what I needed right now. It's where all you've known is anxiety, but you finally realize that God actually wants to take that from you. It's these moments where your relation to God is no longer a matter of evidence. It's a matter of encounter. You've made the leap. Here's why it matters. Because many Christians go their whole lives without an encounter. This was true of John Wesley, the theologian. He lived his life as a theologian. He was a missionary. He was a pastor. And he realized there's something here that's just missing it. I don't, there, there's something, something's cold. Something hasn't clicked for me. His faith was dead. And then one day somebody invites him to a Bible study. He doesn't want to go. They drag him there. He says in his journal, I went very unwillingly to this Bible study. But when he was there, he had an experience. Here's what he writes in his journal. He says, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I like it where he says that he had... He, he realized that God saved him from his sins, and he says it again, even mine, because we all believe, yes, Jesus died for my sins, Jesus died for my sins, but then you wait, wait. Jesus died for my sins. You see it? Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. That's the leap. My prayer is that we would be a people who hunger for an encounter. The kind that moves it from our head to our heart. You know, when, when we come here to worship, that that's what we, we would expect. That that's what we would want. When you wake up in the morning and you grab your Bible off the nightstand and you open up what we call God's word, think about it for a second. God's talking to us in this thing. <laughs> that we would come to the text expecting an encounter. 
I want to give you a few things that I've noticed about what I'm calling the encounter. Um, these are not rules. God can do what he wants. These are just observations about what often is the case based on what I think the Bible says and what I've experienced, what others have experienced. And, and the first is this. It's intensely personal. The encounter is intensely personal. It often happens in a way that is particularly meaningful for you, right? It might, it might not always translate well to others. Sometimes it does. Like sometimes your testimony is just like, whoa, that's awesome, you know? But honestly, think about an amazing testimony you've heard. There's still a gap. It's still an approximation because it's not your story yet. It's intensely personal. The fig tree for Nathaniel, something about that mattered. Something about that broke through to Nathaniel. John Wesley, I imagine him telling his friends, guys, like they were reading the Bible and my heart was strangely warmed and I knew it was the Holy Spirit. And they're like, no, man, it was the burrito you ate. Like, he's like, no, it was for me. It was real. It's intensely personal sometimes. Listen, there's been a lot of these in my life. There, there's the time I'm feeling down about ministry and a, and a verse of encouragement like leaps off the page at me. There was a time where I wasn't sure what, what I wanted to do with my life. And like God gave me the verse that I needed. There are 31,000 verses in the Bible. I needed one in that moment. And my Bible fell open to it, y'all. These are encounters where you know that God is with you and it is, it is huge for you when it happens. Even though it, it might not always mean a lot to others, but for you, it's like, no, like God showed up there. The second thing is this, you can't force it. You can't force it. The encounter is something that God does. It's not something you do. I wrestle with this one. We don't like this. We, we want everything to be a democracy where we all get to decide, <laughs> you know? Um, and I wouldn't say this about salvation. Like, I, I think, well, salvation is something God does, but I think that we can choose to enter into it. But I'm talking about something a little bit narrower here. And... I, Jesus says that the spirit blows where it will. God gets to do what God gets to do. And, and so as hard as it is sometimes to hear it, I want to be able to just flip a switch and boom, God is here. And I had an encounter. Cool. You know, that's not necessarily how it works. Sometimes it happens when you least expect it. Sometimes it happens to the last person you'd expect it to happen to. You know, the spirit blows where it will. We can't control it. However, I do think that we can create conditions in our lives where it's more likely. I think that we can position ourselves in a way where if God wants to do something, say something to us, we're available to hear it. And you know what? When you do that, pretty sure it's going to happen. So here's what I would say is the key ingredient. The key ingredient is contrition. Contrition, what's that word? We see it in Psalm 51. David's great psalm of repentance. He says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. That's a remarkable verse. I, I, I always, it always blows my mind. In the middle of the Old Testament, you are not pleased with burnt offering. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit. They're like, the Old Testament's about legalism and rules. 
My sacrifice is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. There it is, contrite. The Hebrew word for contrite means crushed. The psalmist is saying, if you want God, that's where it starts. It's to be crushed, to be desperate, to realize that you're nothing without him, that you need him. The greatest enemy of the encounter is pride. Removing your pride is like opening the door to God. It's where he can step into the room. Here's what we need to know. Intimacy requires vulnerability. This is any relationship you have. Intimacy. If you want an intimate relationship, you got to be vulnerable. Same goes for our relationship with God. A broken and contrite heart he will not despise. So ask yourself, have you had an encounter with Jesus? Jesus tells about a time where many will come to him and, and they'll know things. They'll have knowledge of him. They'll say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, away from me. I never knew you. You never had an encounter with me. This is the most important thing. It's more important than your career or your 401k. You, cannot, you do not want to live a life. Thinking about it, hearing about it, talking about it, th- saying, gee, I sure wish I could pray more, right? But never having that encounter. People who have had an encounter have an unexplainable joy in suffering. They have a superhuman selflessness. They have a freedom about them that doesn't make sense. And it's because they don't just know about the eternal God. They've met him. And that changes everything. So, if you're asking, some of us here are probably thinking, I haven't. I, I think it's very possible that my sermon today is very bizarre for some people. Um, they, don't, they don't get it. Like, what, what, I don't understand what you're talking about. This is so outside of my, my experience. Well, let me give you a suggestion. We recently started a ministry called the Prayer Counseling Team. Pastor Megan leads it. And in the Prayer Counseling Team, we sit with you, they sit with you, and pray over you for two hours. And they kind of guide you through some prayer exercises, and you are positioning yourself to encounter God. And let me just tell you, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. In fact, I want to share a story. A guy came in for a prayer counseling session recently, and we always ask for, how did it go? Give me, give me, give me some language to help, me, help us know how it went. And Megan sent me this. But here's what he said. He said, I really felt like God was excited to bring light to a time where I was experiencing a lot of inner turmoil. It was so life-giving to sense his enjoyment of bearing the shame slash pain I handed over to him. That sentence is really powerful to me. I sensed his enjoyment of bearing my pain. Why did Jesus come in the first place if not for that? This has changed my view of who God is in a profound way. Seeing how God delights in freeing me from sin and shame versus a God who is disappointed in me. Seeing how he longs for wholeness for me versus a life where I grit through things and force out the quote right actions. This has really changed my prayer life this week in a way I want to be a permanent aspect going forward, knowing that God is for me and that I can lean in and rest on that throughout the day. I don't need to bring or create some sort of agenda, but I can sit in his presence and rest in the work that he has done. Look, I pray that anyone who has that moment, that it would just stay with them forever. 
I pray that that stays with them forever. But you know what? Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we forget, you know? And so that's why we need the church. That's why we need one another. That's why we need worship, to continually come back to the well. But that right there is what I want for everybody. That's what we should all want for ourselves. If it hasn't happened yet, chase it. A little sneak peek in the next week's sermon. We're going to talk about the paralyzed man whose friends tore a roof off in order to get them to Jesus. Sometimes you've got to tear the roof off. Sometimes you've got to pursue God. Sometimes you've got to chase it. And there's nothing more important. Nothing could be worth it. So let's chase God together. If you would like to have a prayer counseling session, just write it on your connection card, prayer counseling. Pastor Megan will be in touch with you. It's a great thing to do. Awesome opportunity for us just to step into the presence of God and see what he has for us. Let's pray. Well, God, we trust that um, in, my, <laughs> in my mass of words that I've just delivered, there is something for somebody, something for everybody. Um, and Lord, I do ask that your word would um, impress itself upon us, uh, not mine. But for those of us here who, like Nathaniel, are dismissive of you, um, I guess I just want to acknowledge there's, there's arguments and reason and evidence and all that. that. That can help maybe, but really what we need is you need you to show up, Lord, to invade our space. And so I ask that of them. Uh, Lord, for those of us who are Christians who they can't say I've really ever had that, I'm, I'm not sure I can really relate this, this word encounter. I've gone to church, I've said the prayers, I've done all the things, but I'm not sure I can give that, that story. Lord, we cry out to you and ask for you to come. We lay down our pride and we say, Lord, we're crushed for you, we're desperate for you, we're hungry for you. But we will chase you. There's no barrier or obstacle more important than you. And so we position our hearts and our lives as a full-on sprint into your presence. Meet us there, we pray. Amen.